right, welcome to the Moving Forward Podcast. This is your host, Corey Cottrell. And of course, we have my buddy, Rio Vernier. Hey, guys. And uh, we have a, a really special guest today. Uh, his name is Richard Rhodes. Um, I've been uh, reading all sorts of uh, uh, things about this guy for the last uh, uh, few days. And we're really, really excited to have him on the podcast. Richard, if you could, uh, please uh, you know, uh, give yourself a bit of an a, a introduction. Just kind of tell people who you are, what you do, where you're coming from. Sure. So I'm a professional writer. I published 26 books. I'm working on my 27th. My best-known book is probably The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which was a history of the development of the first atomic bombs. During the Second World War, it won a Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Uh, that made it possible, really, for me to continue writing books for the rest of my life, I'm happy to say. Uh, the book I think we'll be talking about or, or spinning off of was my most recent book, which was called Energy, a Human History. And it is a look at the last 400 years of energy transitions, starting with the Elizabethan transition from wood to coal and coming up to the present, uh, dealing with our current really massive problems with energy transitions, because we now have not only the problem of, of supply and so forth that was always in something that people had to deal with, but we also have global warming. We have world-scale effects now that really was not the case before. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's the, the – so we, we did a quick episode on, on climate uh, a little while ago. You know, we talked about uh, nuclear a little bit. I think you know, we, we, we touched on the, the idea of the, the, the molten salt reactors, um, and I definitely want to get into uh, that kind of thing a lot. Um, but what are the kinds of forces – I, mean, I, I guess what I want to dig into is like there are things that force us as human beings to actually change, right? Yes. And as it turns out, you know, being the frog in boiling water of the slow-moving climate change thing, not working as well as we would hope in a purely rational environment. Um, what, what are the forces that you see that have moved us in the past uh, that might translate to what, uh, what starts moving us, you know, in our current crisis? Well, I think... For me, my favorite story really is the transition during the time of Queen Elizabeth I between wood and coal, because it, it, it was the classic example of how complicated energy transitions actually are. We tend to think that if some kind of fuel, let's say in the Elizabethan case, it was wood, they heated their homes with wood and Unfortunately, as they cut down the wood farther and farther away from London, it got more and more expensive to deliver because of the greater distances involved. And pretty soon, by the time, uh, just about the time Elizabeth came on the scene, which was around 1603, uh, wood was really too expensive for common people. And therefore, they had to look to some other fuel that was cheaper. And the only thing around was coal. And it wasn't even very good coal. It was sulfurous and it was smoked with black carbon smoke. Uh, not at all a suitable fuel for a situation where, and here we get, begin to get into some of the, uh, the infrastructure that actually has to change. You know, it's not just, oh, here's a new kind of fuel. Let's use this now. You also have to adapt all your systems to the new fuel. Uh, and in this case, the, the problem was that very few Elizabethan homes had chimneys. They burned wood fires up against a wall on a, on a stone or iron thing called a rerado and let the smoke just drift through the house and out the windows. They thought wood smoke hardened the rafters and even was healthy for their breathing. But imagine if you had to switch without chimneys from something like wood smoke, which most of us have good feelings about, even though I don't think we want it in our homes, to, <laughs> except in a fireplace, to, uh, to something like coal, which filled their homes with black sulfurous smoke that was hard to breathe. They cooked their meat, of course, over those wood fires. Imagine trying to cook your meat over a sulfurous coal fire. So that's one kind of infrastructure change that had to happen. Uh, 
But even more profoundly, and I think this really parallels nuclear today, there was a general feeling that on the part of Elizabethan preachers that coal was evil because not knowing anything about geology in those days, but finding coal in layers underground. I mean, most of England was underlaid with layers of coal of various thicknesses. Uh, the preachers concluded that this must be literally the devil's excrement. Fire and brimstone. Oh, no. <laughs> the devil being down and down oh, in the middle of the earth. That checks out. So presumably he shat upward <laughs> from his perspective. And here was the, here was the, I mean, imagine that you're going to bring this evil material into your home. So it was a real problem. And of course, the wealthy stayed with wood. In fact, they would often burn, uh, make, make their, their staff burn coal down in their apartments uh, while, the, while the wealthy burn, burn nice wood up in the, in the main halls. Well, how do you get past these, these both cultural and infrastructural problems? Uh, clearly, in order to burn coal, they had to backfit all their homes with chimneys. Right. And you find comments by Elizabethan chroniclers talking about the sudden appearance of chimneys all over their village as people set up to burn this new material. But there was also the need to find some cultural change. And interestingly, when Elizabeth died around, I think, 1603, the new king was, was uh, James VI of Scotland, who was, became James I of England. Scotland had never had the kind of forests England had, being farther north. Right. And so they had been burning coal for 100 years. They had the awareness of how to handle. They had the infrastructure already in place. But when the king moved to London to take over the leadership of England as well as Scotland, he brought coal with him as a fuel. And suddenly coal was fashionable. It was okay to burn coal because, good Lord, the king burned coal. <laughs> that helped with this transition. It still took about 40 years. And one of the fundamental developments that I think scholars who have looked at transitions between fuels across all these centuries have found is that because you have to change the infrastructure, because you have to make cultural changes in the way people think about the fuel, it takes on average 100 years to go from 10, to go from 1% market penetration of a fuel source to 50%, which is to say uh, the majority. Right. It takes about 100 years historically to make that happen. Well, we don't have 100 years, obviously we're going to be in really serious trouble with global warming if we don't move much faster than that. But the same kinds of resistance that, that the English found with, with their transition from wood to coal is facing us now in our transition away from fossil fuels. I should have mentioned as well, of course, something that shows up more typically later on, and that is the existing uh, uh, interests who have investments in a particular type of fuel, let's say coal, all the coal mines, or in our case, fossil fuels, uh, are extremely resistant to these transitions right. because, they're, because they're going to lose all their investment in the fuel that they, that they own. And we're seeing that, of course, today with the, the, the intense resistance on the part of fossil fuel uh, interests in, in changing over to, to uh, zero carbon sources of fuel. Absolutely. So yeah, that's a that, example. Go ahead. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. With the, uh, the fossil fuel problem is largely a special interest problem. Um, and, and of course, in the case of the Trump administration, he's even trying to turn the clock back to coal, <laughs> which is yes. absurd. Um, but we do have the, the equivalent of the devil's excrement problem, which sadly is a problem um, on both the right and the left. So it's a, a really intractable issue, but it's really primarily a cultural problem. And, and it is this fear of nuclear energy. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit, Richard? Why, why are people afraid of nuclear energy and what can you say to alleviate their concerns? 
Well, I found a number of reasons for the resistance to nuclear. I suppose the most obvious, but the most profound, is the fact that this extraordinary new source of energy was introduced to the world with the destruction of two cities. That's probably not the best way to introduce <laughs> a new, new source of energy to the world. Well put. So, so, so there is that background dread, which I think has been with us since 1945, uh, that people simply are, fear this kind of new source. Then in addition, through a very complicated pattern of scientific research, some of which turns out to have been questionable to say the least, there was this decision on the part of our national uh, atomic energy people to decide that there was no lower limit to the danger of radiation. This is called the linear no threshold model, meaning that no matter how little radiation you're exposed to, the, the US government decided to consider any amount uh, potentially not good for you. There's a great amount of evidence that that's not true. That in fact, there's a threshold below which radiation is at least neutral, if not in fact positive, uh, much the way an inoculation against a disease is positive by stimulating the immune system. That is not really, the positive argument is still controversial. The neutral argument is no longer controversial. But for reasons of supposed uh, uh, care and concern, uh, our government position is still the best way to deal with radiation is the least amount possible in any setting. That has basically made nuclear uh, something that people are afraid of for that reason as well. So that levels of radiation, first of all, you don't get radiation from nuclear power plants. By law, they're not allowed to, to if you will, <laughs> to leak radiation, yeah. Right, yeah. And in fact, the, the most intense source of man-made radiation in the world today is coal burning, which surprises people when they hear it. Yep. But coal is part of the Earth's crust, and the Earth's crust also has uranium in it. And uranium, although it's very low radiation because it has, well, I won't go into why, but natural uranium has so little radiation that you can handle it with your hands, which I have done uh, over in the Soviet Union when I was handed a big chunk of a piece of a nuclear reactor. In fact, it was like tough. do. Tossed at me from a flight of stairs by an old engineer who wanted, wanted to show me the reactor that he was operating. Uh, radiation, wait, where was I? Sorry. So we were, talking about, uh, we were talking about uranium, oh. and I think uh, the coal yeah. thing, one of the things that I, I think I saw in an article that, that, uh, that you were mentioning, or it might have even been one of yours, uh, you were talking about the fact that uh, the Chinese, and I think so, uh, another country as well, yes. is actually mining coal ash uh, uh, like basically coal waste uh, to, yes. uh, to, to get plausible, uh, you know, uh, fuel for, for uh, reactors. So back in the 1950s, when we thought we didn't have much uranium in the United States, before the vast sources were discovered on the Colorado Plateau, uh, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission considered using coal ash which concentrates all the mineral part of coal after coal is burned. The organic parts burn up, the minerals don't. And what's left is coal ash, which is used to make concrete blocks for houses and so forth. But it has so much uranium concentrated in it that it was going to be used by the Atomic Energy Commission as a source of uranium for weapons. We never did that because the, the discoveries in the Colorado Plateau made uranium cheap and available for us. The Chinese, however, have so much coal ash stored around their country, their big country with so many coal plants over the years, right. that they are in fact going to extract the uranium from that because they're planning to build across the next 20 years, 100 new power reactors. They want 
And, and interestingly, this is the other value of nuclear that never seems to get discussed. Nuclear cleans the air because it doesn't put any, any waste into the atmosphere at all. Not only CO2 for, for concerns about global warming, but before that, the real reason nuclear was originally developed in part was to help cities that had bad air pollution problems. The first commercial nuclear reactor was built at Shippingport, Pennsylvania, which is outside Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh used to look like Beijing in terms of just the sheer air pollution from all the coal burning steel mills in that, that uh, city, which is down in a pretty narrow valley. So inversions produce enormous amounts of air pollution, much like Beijing. When, when I interviewed the president of the uh, uh, Duquesne Light, which was the company that was going to control the shipping port reactor, he told me, he said, you know, we went to the uh, city council in Pittsburgh and they said, we are trying to clean up our air. Nuclear power is a green technology. Can we have a nuclear power plant near our city? And of course, he said, sure, especially since the United States government was going to underwrite the cost. So he was delighted. But my point is, nuclear's first function was cleaning up the air. And indeed, that's going to be its primary function in China. China is now going to export coal, unfortunately, which means it's really not going to be a step forward in dealing with global warming at all because the coal is going to go to Africa and other places that, that need fuel. So that's not a solution to CO2 in the atmosphere, but it does help clean up the air. And that's one of the important functions of nuclear. So there are two things that people today bring up that they worry about with nuclear. One is accidents and the other is what about the waste? I always find it amazing that people are worried about nuclear waste because there is so little uh, comparatively speaking, nuclear power is about three to four million times as efficient for energy production as coal. If you think of that in terms of material, that means that you use a lot less fuel to produce the same amount of energy than you would if you were burning coal. Right. Coal produces so much waste that we don't we don't have any laws that say you can't. Uh, release it off the reservation as we do with nuclear. So coal waste, as I said, is used as either dumped into the atmosphere as smoke or the materials themselves are used for things like concrete blocks. So whereas with nuclear, nothing is allowed to leave the reservation except in the form of contained waste. So nuclear in that sense, now where do we put this waste? Okay, so it's a fairly small amount. In fact, a lifetime supply of nuclear waste from the French operation for a fa family of four is about the size of a small can of soup. In fact, it's actually less volume than that. So there's not a lot. And that means that we can spend a lot more money disposing of it very carefully because yes, it will be radioactive for some time to come. It contains fission products that will be highly radioactive for several hundred years right. and won't, won't retreat to the level of, of the original uh, uh, ore for about a thousand years. So what do we do with it? There are two sites already open or almost ready to open uh, in the world today. One is in New Mexico, down near Carlsbad. It's called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, and it was built by the US government. It's in a layer of, of crystalline salt that was left behind when an old ocean dried up several million years ago. This layer of crystalline salt is about two kilometers thick. It's so huge that it extends from southern New Mexico all the way up to southwestern Kansas. And what we've done is drilled down about halfway down into this, this thick layer of pure crystalline salt and mined out some channels. Waste, the state of, of New Mexico in its wisdom decided to 
pass a law banning commercial nuclear waste from the site. So today, the only waste that goes there is low-level military waste, meaning, meaning uh, oil drums, 55-gallon oil drums full of old coveralls and whatever else is around that picked up some, some material in the course of military uh, work on, on weapons materials. Right. In any case, these 55-gallon drums and some higher-level waste as well are simply taken into rooms carved out of the salt down a kilometer below ground, plugged into the salt with a hole that's been drilled out, then a piece of, then a plug is put on top of it. When the room is full of these barrels, it's filled up with salt and sealed. And curiously, this salt creeps. It has a, the property of slowly compressing, filling any space that's carved out in it. So within a few decades, these barrels will be crushed into and included in this material, and they will be basically inaccessible for who knows how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Right, just giving it back to uh, back to the earth, basically. It's right. one of the things that you're picking up on, on because you know, as you know, we're sort of uh, fans of, uh, of Andrew Yang and the sort of data movement. And, you know, that's why we talk about moving forward. Of course, uh, Rio is a, a conservative. I'm, you know, more uh, of a progressive bent. And it's sort of the whole idea of the show, right? But we really want to focus in on data. And I had, you know, I noticed, in, in, you know, that, that, you know, you had actually changed your mind on, on, on nuclear. And I'm sort of, you know, uh, as somebody who's, who's, you know, interested in the, in the, the climate crisis, because it's freaking real, you know, like anything yeah. that we can do to actually uh, get in the way of that or, or, or start getting on top of it, I'm going to absolutely before. And all the research that, that, that I was doing on my own, you know, finding all these nuclear reactors that are right, uh, you know, right on the water or in floodplains or poorly run or, you know, all these things that, that could be negatives. But looking at the data, the number of people that actually had been negatively impacted by uh, all nuclear all over the planet right. versus even just natural gas or fracking like any one uh, uh carbon-based uh, uh uh industry and even i think it was again one of your articles that brought up uh one of the the hydroelectric dams right like china like lost one hydroelectric dam and knocked out like twenty-three thousand people or whatever the hell it was yeah, exactly. you know it, it just the the uh the deaths per gigawatt hour i think is how they calculated it were like thousands of times different. They're just, you know, when you actually start crashing into the data, it's just safer. And, you know, to the point you made, it's not actually polluting any carbon into the atmosphere whatsoever. So we're sort of getting the electrical capacity without any of the just automatic uh, uh, dangers. Well, and it's, it's really sad that the uh, renewables movement has decided that they're okay because obviously renewables need backup since they don't operate 24 seven the way nuclear power plants almost do. Uh, they've decided that the backup is, is natural gas. Natural gas puts half as much uh, CO2 in the atmosphere as coal burning. I mean, of course they, it's, it's cleaner from an air pollution point of view. It's but criminal. It's not much cleaner from a carbon point of view at all. They, uh, they had a better lobby because extractive technologies are a hell of a lot more uh yes. it's a, it's it's better profit that's like that's the only thing that that made sense to me right there's trillions of dollars worth of profit in 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 this and so what's the the i i definitely want to bring up thorium reactors because some of the reading that i did basically suggested that if we use thorium or molten salt and i'd love to you know have you describe what those are just so that uh, uh you know even i can understand them better um, but that basically we could run civilization for like millions of years just based on the, uh, 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 the, the sort of known quantities of stuff that we have like that, that kind of thing, even if it has to be subsidized, like, you know, maybe the, the profit motive doesn't really work there because it, you know, it's not necessarily something that you can properly price into the market or something. Like, I don't know why we don't just have these things all over the place right now. So could you maybe speak to, to what they are, why they're safer and, and why we should just automatically be making a million of them? <laughs> Well, look, let's say first, the current generation of nuclear reactors are safe. Uh, the kind of thing that happened at Chernobyl, that was the type of reactor we've only built in the past to extract plutonium for nuclear weapons, which is, which is why the Russians built it. They were interested in having dual-use technology across the board. That was one of their basic principles. Okay. So 
they build a reactor that could make plutonium and generate electricity, but it had a terrible design flaw that, that uh, blew it up eventually. So the kind of reactors we have now are safe. Uh, they're run safely and they are safe. People will immediately think of Fukushima. Uh, we can talk about that, but the fact is that off the reservation, the levels of radiation were much lower than the Japanese acknowledged or allowed for. People did not have to be evacuated from their homes. And the deaths that occurred around Fukushima, uh, with the exception of two workers who, who got burned by steam and died, not a, not a radiation death at all. The deaths that occurred around Fukushima had to do with people being evacuated, not with the, the problem of the reactor itself. So, we have already a decent fleet and the reason and the rest of the world is going for nuclear power in a major way right now using somewhat more advanced versions of our light water uranium fueled reactors but and it has also been demonstrated lately that there that it's possible economically to extract uranium from seawater so even if we only went with uranium, there's plenty of uranium in seawater, obviously, uh, we would have enough yeah. forever. I didn't know but, that at all. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yes. that's incredible. Yeah, but, but thorium is another material using a slightly different react, reaction process. Uh, thorium itself does not, isn't fissile, it doesn't chain react. But it, if you put it in a reactor, it, breeds uh, another type of uranium, uranium-233, not 235, which is what fissions in, in our existing reactors, that does uh, chain react. So there's a lot of thorium in the world, and particularly, for example, in India, which does not have much uranium. India has enormous quantities of thorium around, so I would expect down the road that they would go for thorium technology. And, and in fact, right now, a company that I happen to have a few shares of stock in, not very many, is developing a thorium-uranium mixed fuel that can go into current American reactors that would extend. The problem is there's so much uranium awash in the world right now that it's dirt cheap. Uh, I don't know if your, your uh, listeners are aware, but one of the great stories at the end of the Cold War was the decision uh, recommended by a scientist at MIT to buy Russian weapons uranium, basically Russian warheads, and dilute the fuel down to reactor levels and sell it to American nuclear power companies. For a long time, and to some degree still, the program ended in 2015, but a lot of our power reactors are still running on old Russian warhead fuel. It was one of the ways we got rid of it permanently so that the Russians couldn't use it to build more, more weapons. And, and the deal was it didn't cost the government anything. We took their diluted fuel yeah. and sold it to the commercial power companies, and it was used to make power. So, but right now there is an enormous growth around the world in nuclear power outside of the United States. China, as I said, is planning to build 100 nuclear reactors. India just announced yesterday that they're going to build 20 new reactors in the next two decades. Whether those will be uranium fueled, I think they are planning to use uranium. So thorium is still a fuel down the road. It does take a slightly different reactor design. Right. So, but, but the point is, the rest of the world understands that the way to go forward with large quantities of power, look, there are two problems that have grown up simultaneously. And together, they are really uh, uh, a challenge to the world. The first, clearly, is global warming. And that means reducing the amount of carbon we're putting into the atmosphere. And that means decarbonizing the fuel supply. But at the same time, numbers, millions and millions of people around the world, billions in the case of China, are just now beginning to move up the economic ladder towards some sort of decent life and enough to eat and so forth. 
And that's also, of course, obviously true with Africa, the entire continent, right. except for South Africa. So we have one and the same time what will be an enormous increase in demand for energy, even as we're trying to reduce the carbon level of the energy we produce. That simply is not going to happen with renewables. It just simply isn't. There's not enough steel produced in the world. There's not enough glass produced in the world to make the kind of renewable operations that would produce the kind of energy that everyone's going to need. And it, it, it speaks to, I think, the, the, the cost thing, right? Like we need to, we need to make sure we rack up the pain such that it takes a really, really long time for the trees to get to London, right? So the idea that, that coal is still super cheap enough that China can start exporting it to, uh, uh, to Africa is a problem, right? Like the demand in Africa is not going to uh, slow down. Uh, in fact, to your point, it's going to ramp up at least geometrically. So it's a matter of getting a, it's a matter of getting a, a, an exportable kind of power supply like that's what I like. I like. Not only should America be be getting behind this kind of thing, but it's really clear to me that we need to export smarter things than coal, right? Like China is going to yes. export it because they have it, right? So you know that's well, welcome to markets. I mean, there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, look. Uh, the truth is, right now, the two main suppliers of nuclear power to the world are France and Russia. They're jumping into the market everywhere. Uh, South Korea is planning to export reactors as well, and modular reactors, reactors that are built in a factory so that they can be built to standardized measures and dimensions and so forth, Smart. and then shipped to wherever, wherever they need to go. Uh, the United States is going to lose a huge potential economic market by, by its resistance to nuclear power. And the resistance is truly everything that I know about the subject, and I've been writing about nuclear one way or another for 40 years now. I've yeah. interviewed most of the pioneers who developed these technologies. In fact, the reason I moved from being anti-nuclear as a young journalist who didn't know anything about it back in the 70s to, to being pro-nuclear is because as I worked with the scientists many of them Nobel laureates, decent and honorable people who had developed the first nuclear weapons and then the first nuclear power reactors, I realized that I just simply couldn't shrug their knowledge and their commitment and their judgment aside. I had to, you know, science works for all of us basically on a kind of trust. We don't all go out and do the experiments. We have to take the word of people we judge to be honest. And these were certainly people one could judge to be honest, with the possible exception of Edward Teller. <laughs> and, but other than that, uh, I finally had to say to myself, these people say that these things are true. They've given me ample evidence and talked to me about it and described it. I visited the machines. I know how they operate. Uh, clearly, what they're telling me is true. And the fact that they are routinely shrugged aside as somehow being uh, shills of the nuclear power industry is simply madness. <laughs> These are not people who were ever in the nuclear power industry. But they were people who had great hopes for a source of energy that is the first major source of energy that doesn't rely on sunlight directly or indirectly. And in that sense, is an, and, and is so concentrated, is such a dense source of energy for the amount of fuel that the fuel can be handled and dealt with in very careful ways. Yeah, it's, and we, we've actually talked about this on, the, on, on this show a lot. The idea that it's now acceptable and maybe it kind of always has been and maybe it's just you know it's just a, a, a more of an issue now because we can actually talk about it as a thing the idea that we're just going to discount experts the yes. idea that that you know the our capacity to trust um people that are you know well experts in their field is like way smarter than me 
um, it, it, that's always kind of seemed, and I think I can speak for real, like we've always just been like, yeah, you should probably listen to scientists. They have specialties. It's one of those things, right? And it's been, of course, muddied up because, you know, you have, uh, uh, if you can find even one scientist who's going to speak out, you know, uh, against the, the link between uh, tobacco and, and cancer, for example, they're actually exactly the same people, uh, uh, you know, in uh, uh, the Merchants of Doubt that are, are you know, trying to say that climate change isn't real or whatever, right? So you, you have like, like this tiny little percentage of people that will say anything for money. And that has completely and totally muddied the water for everybody else who is, you know, I think the vast majority of scientists, you know, it's not that some, you know, green cabal or some nuclear cabal are like, no, 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 like this is, you know, this is actually safe and we can show you the numbers. Yes. The second you look at the numbers, you're like, oh, cool, we should do this. And it's not even, yes. you know, it's not rocket science. No, exactly. But I, again, I point out, this is one of the consequences of a transition from one source of energy to another. There are all sorts of vested interests involved in right. staying with what we had before. There is skepticism about the knowledge base of whatever we're talking about. These things were true all the way back in Elizabethan England, and they're still true now, unfortunately, because right now we have a more serious problem than the world has ever faced before. It was one thing for the English to have their homes unheated because, because they didn't want to burn coal. It's another thing for the entire world to be facing increasingly desperate high-level temperatures such that we will basically have to abandon parts of the earth or all move underground. I like to point out that in, in uh, 2015, in northern Iran, there was a heat index, which is a measure of temperature and humidity combined, of 165 degrees yeah. one, one August. And I had to go to my cookbook to find some measure at that temperature, and I found that that's the internal temperature of a properly roasted chicken. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that we're facing. And unless we get a handle around these sources of energy, I don't know what we're going to do except dig holes in the ground and live down below and come up to the top in air-conditioned suits. Uh, it's, it's really much more of a crisis than people are prepared, I think, to deal with. And the reason it's such a complicated crisis is because it's such a gradual change. Yeah. We are now one degree centigrade into that two degree centigrade increase that has been the level that that the, the economic powers of the world concluded was a, a, a upper limit to where we should allow global warming to go. Two degrees centigrade, which is about 3.8 degrees Fahrenheit. So imagine a world where everything is four degrees Fahrenheit hotter than it is now. It doesn't sound like much, but it's actually a lot. And it manifests itself. I live in Northern California. One of the things it manifests itself as is burning forests. Yeah, as things dry out in some parts of the world. So the crisis is there. Other countries are beginning to move much more rapidly than the United States toward nuclear power as part of the solution. That doesn't say that we shouldn't build solar and wind where they're appropriate. And I think where they're appropriate is on smaller grids not to pump the power around the United States with all of its irregularities and times when it's not working, but rather for a local grid. Uh, you know, we had this enormous shutdown of power in California a couple of weeks ago that was just an absolute disaster. The right. power company decided to protect itself from having fires because of down power lines by shutting off the power to more than a million people for what was going to be up to a week. Once they realized how insane that was, they turned it back on with the 24 hours. But if we had had a microgrid, let's say around uh, Half Moon Bay, California, which is where I live, a community on a shoreline of about 12,000 people, we could have run our own electricity just with wind or solar or both. Yeah. That would be an application. It's a great application in Africa where there is basically no international power grid at all. Uh, rather the way that countries that didn't have good telephone systems jumped over wire telephone and went straight to cellular 
I mean, this, the former Soviet Union did that after they, after they uh, got going. The same thing is true with, the, with these rather specialized sources of energy. But if you would baseload energy, you know, there's something called capacity factor, which is how much of the time a particular source of energy is actually delivering power. The capacity factor for solar is about 25%, meaning about one-fourth of the time solar is actually on and running. The capacity factor for wind, depending on the location, is around 30%. The capacity factor for nuclear is above 90%. The only time nuclear is ever shut down basically is when they have to change out the fuel every couple of years or just for general maintenance for a week or so once a year. So here is a reliable, safe, uh, by the way, nuclear power reactors by and large have, have lived through all of the major hurricanes and disasters we've had in this country over the last few years. Right. They have big, powerful buildings that are made out of reinforced concrete designed to keep a, a nuclear meltdown contained within them, should they ever have one. And they're, they're very good for, for surviving wind episodes and so forth. So it has lots of virtues, but it has this one basic cultural problem that people have not simply adjusted to the idea of something so new. Yeah, and given that it is a cultural problem, um, solving it, is I mean I guess in theory it's possible to solve it fairly quickly if we can find the right rhetorical strategy. Um, but you, you know, Corey was touching on on this when he talked about the uh, lack of trust in experts. That also applies to journalists and writers. You know, I mean nowadays people call the real news fake, and then they believe whatever random nonsense they read by who knows what on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really hard in that environment to influence culture in a positive way. So obviously you're, uh, as a writer, Richard, you're, um, you, you know, in the business of trying to change people's minds or make people think. So what advice do you have for those of us who agree with you and who would like to try to change the minds of the people in our lives? Well, you know, as I've talked about this subject over the last few years, <clears throat> excuse me, I increasingly have focused on a very straightforward factual presentation. People presumably ask me to speak with some trust in what I have to say. And I focused on the two things that I mentioned earlier. One, the question of accidents, uh, and two, the question of waste. And I think if you present the facts fairly on those two subjects, people well, I found that my audiences have basically said, wow, I didn't know that. They've heard exaggerated versions of what happens with nuclear accidents, what has happened. They've heard exaggerated discussions of the waste. You know, one of the things I've never understood is how, what people think would happen if waste that's buried a mile below ground in a bed of granite somehow found its way up to the surface. I mean, I don't know how that would happen, but if it did, what then? We're talking about material that's typically been, been fused with glass, the most resistant material that people could think of to, to fuse this material with. Uh, if, if some of it came to the surface, it would be a very local problem. It wouldn't be a bomb. It wouldn't even be something that would float around. It would just be some cracked material, as far as I can see. So yeah. when you talk about the facts, I think people are increasingly interested exactly because they're increasingly aware of global warming. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that's going to bring the change that we're in fact talking about. I think the cultural change will come indirectly as a result of people's increased awareness that global warming is a very serious crisis and we've got to do something about it. And that somehow it's not gonna be enough. Even if it were enough, it would be immensely expensive, far more expensive than nuclear, to produce the equivalent amount of power using windmills and solar panels. Yeah, I think it's an all hands on deck kind of situation, right? I'm a huge fan of solar panels and awesome new batteries and the technology is getting better all the time. But to your point about just materials, 
you know, getting, you know, our demand here taken care of, we could probably figure that out. But to your point, every, you know, country that is second or third world is, is lifting itself up right now. Uh, and they're going to be really, really hungry for power. So how do we, how do we price out of the market something as ridiculous as coal? And yeah. it's, this is just, this is something that absolutely has to be part of that, uh, part of that equation. Well, and I think you're absolutely right. I, th I mean, my ultimate answer has always been all of the above. Right. But by that, I don't mean fossil fuels. Those have got yeah. to decline. Hard pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Um, right. Yeah. Like I, it's it's as if we're finally at this point where we have a certain calamity and a highly uncertain. But then when you educate yourself, not even that high of a probability of a of a calamity with nuclear. And it seems to me too, like the the not not only is it statistically less dangerous right now than things like coal or things like uh, you know other extractive technologies, which I don't think can be repeated enough. It it is all technologically stuff that we can make safer incrementally over time anyway. Like even no. where it's at right now, right? It seems to me that, that, you know, if we put engineering pressure on, on creating more safe environments, even than this, we can still do it. And it's way better than having to, you know, live underground. Well, and, and, you know, the United States kind of got the worst of it because we were the pioneers. Yeah. We made all the mistakes. The uh, South Koreans, for example, are building a kind of reactor that was designed in the United States, but that is much more in, much safer because of its fundamental design features than the early reactors that we built. They are quite safe, but but the new ones are going to be inherently safe, meaning you can just walk away from them and they won't blow up. They'll just right. shut themselves down. And the next and the the French are a really wonderful example because they decided having no coal, no gas, uh, no other source of energy for their country in any quantity. They decided to go nuclear in a big way, also because uh, uh, they wanted to develop nuclear weapons early on. So that was part of their plan as well. And they did that. Their reactors have been standard designs. And when as they point out. Therefore, as they build them, they're of different ages. If an older one of their standard designs starts to have a particular problem, they know that that will probably mean the younger versions of the same design will eventually have that problem. So before that happens with the other reactors, they can go back and fix them all. As a result, they have never had a nuclear accident. They are now at the point where 75% of all the energy produced in France is nuclear. Wow. They reduce their air pollution by a factor of five, and they are selling their technology to the rest of the world. They are really a classic example of how to do nuclear right. We made an enormous improvement in our safety back in the 1980s when we began to use Navy reactor operators from nuclear submarines as the operators of our commercial nuclear power. When Hyman Rickover built the nuclear Navy, he was an absolute fanatic about safety. And they were trained in a safety culture, which is what the French also calls it, that, that had not been the case with the earlier development of nuclear power in the United States. A lot of power companies said, ah, it's just another way to make steam. And they didn't take it as seriously as they should. But with now all of our commercial reactors are operated by ex-Navy guys. Yep. And that's another factor in their safety. It's another reason why they have such a high capacity factor. They're operated in an increasingly efficient way so that they operate almost all the time. And that's a, that's a factor, of course, that makes for economy in terms of the costs of operation. Right. The fact is, because we have so much regulation around our reactors, they're expensive to build. They would be less expensive to build if they were modular, which is the next generation. They would be less expensive to build if some of the attitude toward low-level radiation was changed. Uh, but once they are amortized in terms of the physical plant, they're the cheapest form of energy around because they use so little fuel and the fuel itself is so cheap. The, so the cheapest and the cleanest. <laughs> <laughs> and the cleanest, yes, absolutely. 
There are lots of reasons. I think, in other words, I really do think that we're changing already in this country uh, in our attitude toward nuclear power. Unfortunately, the other piece of this, this, this resistance has to do with the polarization of our two political parties. Mm -hmm. Because Republicans have kind of championed nuclear power over the years, Democrats have taken the opposite position. And you hear people otherwise as brilliant as Elizabeth Warren being anti-nuclear. It's become a kind of democratic fallback position that appeals to part of the Democrat base, but unfortunately doesn't help us move forward with these problems. Yeah, it, al it also leads to bills. I re I'm, I'm reluctant to call it a bill. Well, I guess it's not even a bill. Plans like the Green New Deal, which would be a lot more expensive than necessary and that aren't going to pass. You know, I mean, like they, here we have a chance to make real progress on the environment, bipartisan progress, and it's being held up because, sadly, because people on the left don't want nuclear. And like you said, Richard, I think you're right. I think it's partially just because people on the right want it. I mean, how are we ever going to compromise with one another if the fact that the other side supports something is the reason for rejecting it? Yes. <laughs> And unfortunately, right now, natural gas is cheap enough. There's so much in the United States that it's possible for people on the left who are anti-nuclear to say, we'll fill in the capacity factor with natural gas, yeah. even though natural gas does not help with global warming in it's, any significant way. Yeah, that, that watching that as, as a lefty, uh, who, for the record, over the last six months has evolved a great deal on, on nuclear and in no small part because I spent a while researching you and your work. Um, <laughs> well, I, we can be moved, right? I mean, that, that I, I yeah. think that the, the, the guiding principle that we want to share with everybody who, who decides to listen to the show is data should always win, period, right? Like, we, we yeah. can't be ideologues anymore, Rio. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Rio is a, a, a renowned ideologue, but is movable by <laughs> is movable by data, which which is why we're friends. Uh, so, like that, just it it has to be the way that we move forward with this pun intended, because the crisis really is happening, right? Like the the for every degree of temperature that goes up, you know, I, I'm from northern Canada, right? So permafrost is something that that I have a lot of you know experience with, and the amount of methane that's in permafrost right yeah. now is a time bomb. It's just yeah, it, it every, every tiny, like every single time I hear, um, every single time I hear that, uh, uh, the North is getting warmer than it was. I haven't been up there for a long time, but like, it's the canary in the coal mine, right? Every single time I hear that it's getting warmer up there, I'm like what, what year is, are we going to see some geometric change as opposed to yes. this, this yes. slow crawl? Cause that's coming and well, we need and, to be ready for it. And really the concern is, is to use that man's phrase, a tipping point might occur with some of these phenomena that we're not aware of right. that happened before in the history of the earth times when there was a very rapid change between let's say great heat and great cold right uh, we don't we don't want to get to that point or we'll be we'll be gone we'll be lost i think we really have to get our arms around this but again my sense over the centuries of looking back to the past was that people changed when they were forced to change, even if they didn't want to. And that's something that we're approaching, I think, now. When you hear that countries in the Middle East are going to be air conditioning the outdoors <laughs> just in order to be able to go out at all when it's 120, 125 degrees and high humidity, uh, that begins to look like, and, and most of all, I think the pressure that's going to come from, from what we used to call third world countries that have reached the point where they're, the other thing people always worried about and nuclear was offered as an answer to, and that was part of the anti-nuclear movement back in the 20th century, was the concern with overpopulation, which was much exaggerated, but came up at about the same time as nuclear power was coming into the market. And nuclear power was offered as a solution to overpopulation in the sense that the nuclear people said there'll be enough energy. But they were talking about 40 billion people in the world. <laughs> that was the kind of fear that was instilled in people with books like The Population Bomb, which yeah. was a great success. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen because the countries that looked as if 
that, that the population bond said we should just write off like India and China. Let's not help them anymore. Let's let them all die and starve, uh, really was the message in those days. Uh, as they improved their situation, particularly with the green revolution in, in agriculture, uh, what's called the, the demographic transition occurred, meaning people stopped having so many babies. And the yep. reason they did is because they had enough children survive to adulthood to have someone to bury them. So instead of having 10 or 12 children with only one or two surviving, they're now getting down toward the world we live in where you have a couple of kids to replace yourself at most. Under those circumstances, it looks like, according to the UN, population is going to level off in 2100 at about 10 billion. And that at that point, it'll be basically ZPG, zero population growth. Thereafter. That's manageable. <laughs> yeah, yeah that we can live with that. Yeah. yeah. I just read a, right, exactly. a, a Kevin so, Kelly. We, sorry, Kevin Kelly used to be the uh, uh, the the main editor over at Wired, uh, and he had a, an article called "The Population Implosion" that I read a few years ago that blew my mind because I was of the, of the same one. Like the population was obviously, and that yeah. was the the party line for for a long time, right? Like it just sort of a, it was stated as fact that population was going to go crazy. Uh, but then you know that you go and look at all the the population projections, even for the UN, uh, even a couple of years ago, and they never go past twenty fifty. And so right. we basically did a, a dig into this and said that it, it's impossible for population to level out at 2050. And he said the highest correlation uh, uh, between leveling off populations, obviously, you know, developing nations and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of factors, but he said the highest correlation is the education of young girls. Any, any exactly. education of young girls that lasts between the age of five and 12 will start to drop uh, um, you know, yeah. population explosions uh, exponentially, which is which is really fun. So exactly, exactly. Yeah, and at the risk of sounding um, like too much of an ideologue, <laughs> globalism, <laughs> globalization played a big role in helping a lot of these developing countries uh, become affluent enough that they can start making this kind of progress. Yes, exactly. And and the green revolution was a big part of that. So. Those changes have occurred, but they haven't necessarily occurred in the minds of the people who became anti-nuclear as a result of their concern with overpopulation. And I think that's a, a time lag in terms of understanding that may have to fill in just catch as catch can. Again, that's not different from, from the situation that has occurred in the past, right. where, where people simply were resisting new forms of energy. So uh, thank you again for, for coming on the show. I got one more uh, question. The, the last question that I wanted to ask, you know, with the uh, sort of preeminence of the climate change crisis being the thing that most people would be most reasonably worried about, what would be the thing that you're most excited about that, uh, that, that, we, can, that we can maybe focus on for a little bit? You mean in terms of nuclear? Uh, in terms of in terms of anything, what what gives you the most hope for about our future? Because we talk a lot about the challenges, and obviously nuclear is definitely a, a good way to do that. And if that's it, then that's that's a, a good answer. Well, you know, you know, behind that is something else, and it's this this uh, improvement in the lives of people in what used to be called the third world. That in itself, you know, what ultimately is the resource above all other resources that we have on this earth. It's people. It's people and their intelligence and their imagination and their creativity. And those are hard things to, to have when you haven't got enough to eat, when you live in, in dirt and, and disarray. As, as, the, as Africa and the rest of the world comes alive, as we're seeing today in China, uh, I think we're going to just see a, a renaissance of all sorts of developments, uh, things that right now may even seem to be uh, questionable, like the internet uh, has changed so much and is going to change so much more for good and for ill. I mean, in a way, I think of sometimes as, as a lot of what I do is writing about the unintended consequences of new technology. No one thought when the nuclear weapons were first developed that they would basically put an end to world-scale war, but they have at the right. price, of course, of potentially destroying the world. That's the other side of that, that equation. But right. there's always that balance with any major technology. So it's the potential for human growth 
in every sense of the word around the world that I think is the most exciting thing that's coming in the future. When we, when we get squared away with some of these immediate problems of which global warming is certainly one of the most important because it's going to affect us. It already is affecting us all. That is a beautiful answer. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the po- podcast. Um, and you're welcome back anytime. Uh, thank you. My pleasure. Yes. Thank yeah. you, Richard. Yes. Awesome sauce. Okay. All right. Hey, Rio, do you want to say that thing? Andrew Yang is our taco. Nailed it. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Uh, we are so excited to be bringing this to you, and we're so excited about the uh, the awesome community, the Yang Gang that's growing up around the candidacy uh, of Andrew Yang. Uh, if you could please tag us on Twitter with the hashtag Moving Forward Pod and uh, find and join the Moving Forward podcast uh, group on Facebook. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.